Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, would you come in power right now? Would you show up in such a way that these words that we examine, these inspired words, would not just be words, would not just be language put on paper for us to read and understand intellectually, but would you do something so powerful on the inside of us that, Lord, even as I preach, even as we discuss this, this incredible text that you, you would move in such a powerful way that there would, would be no way for us to leave here like we came. There would be no way for us to leave here defeated, but that we would leave and be the overcomers that we've just sung about. By your grace, by your power, and by your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. We're going to finish chapter 6 today. And I'm going to pick up reading in verse 14. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 6. I'll read verses 14 to 23. I'll give you a minute to get there. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. If you're there, say amen. 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 For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching or doctrine to which you were committed." And having been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness, But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can we say amen to the reading of his word? Amen. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say I have a sour taste in my mouth for something, right? It's an expression we use. Uh, An example that comes to mind from my own life, 
Uh, several years ago, um, I went on a bike ride with Zeke, who was up here leading worship, uh, up Paris Mountain. And uh, that's, that's a, a bit of a challenge if you've ever tried to do something like that. Uh, it's about a two-mile climb to the top of Paris Mountain, the route we were going. And as we were riding up to the base of the mountain to begin our climb, Zeke handed me an iPod. This was several years ago, uh, a little small iPod that had Coldplay's new latest album on it. Coldplay's latest album at the time was Viva La Vida. If you're a Coldplay fan, you know that's a fantastic album. Uh, so he handed me this and some earbuds, and he said, hey, listen to this while you climb the mountain. It'll help you. You've got two miles of pain ahead of you. So I put my earbuds in. I start listening to this album, and it's fantastic. I hadn't heard it before. I love it. It's great music, but it doesn't take long before I'm on the torture train, Right? And I rode up this mountain listening to this music. And you know what I found out after that ride? I didn't like that album anymore. (laughs) Every time I listened to it, at least for a while, I associated it with pain. I had a bad taste in my mouth for it, right? I've got a good pastor friend of mine. His son, uh, a few years ago, was uh, a very highly recruited football player coming out of high school. And one of the schools, one of the universities that recruited his son happened to be his favorite team. And when I say his favorite team, this guy was not a casual fan. You know what I'm talking about? This guy was serious about pulling for this particular college football team. And his son, how amazing would that be? His son was getting recruited by his favorite team. Well, he ended up not going to that school because they had a bad experience in the recruiting process. And guess what? My friend's not a fan of that team anymore. He got a bad taste in his mouth. And you know what that's like. It might be a great song that you associate with a bad relationship. It might be a great restaurant that you ate at and you got sick afterwards and you don't want to go back there, right? It might be a favorite sport that you used to love to play until you got injured. We know what it's like to get a bad taste in our mouth for stuff. I wonder if something similar could happen in our relationship with Jesus. I grew up in what you might call the holiness tradition. Uh, It has its roots in Wesleyan Methodist and holiness. Um, But the point really is, and I'm not disparaging all of the tradition I grew up in. There's a lot of great things about it. But one of the negative things was I grew up feeling like my relationship with Jesus was just all about my failures to keep him happy with me. That I would do my level best, listen to me, I would do my level best to not do what I wanted to do in order to keep him happy. But then I would inevitably fail. He would not be happy with me. I'd ask for forgiveness and then I'd try all over again. And a lot of Christians live there. A lot of Christians have no problem savoring and celebrating their salvation. I'm justified by faith, by grace through faith, right? I don't, I don't, I don't anchor my salvation to my own righteousness. I know that the free gift of the righteousness of Christ has been given to me. He died for my sins. He took my punishment and I am forgiven, not because I earned it, but because Jesus secured it. Christians celebrate that all day long. We sing about it. We raise our hands. We clap. We savor that. 
But then you get in church and you start talking about sanctification. Ooh. Suddenly people's lips purse up like they've been sucking on a lemon. Because whereas we might savor our salvation when it comes to our sanctification, our growth in holiness, our growth in Christ-likeness, our victory over sin, some Christians, maybe a lot of Christians, maybe some of you, you've got a bad taste in your mouth because the only thing that comes to mind when you think about sanctification is your failed attempts to keep Jesus and God happy with you by your performance. It shouldn't be that way. In fact, I'm going to make the case this morning that we should be able to savor sanctification, our growth in holiness, as much, if not more so, than our salvation. Because our growth in sanctification, we talked about this last week, is not a growth in my willpower efforts to make better decisions. It's a pursuit of joy. The Christian life is not about transformed decisions or decision-making. It's about transformed desires, which means, if that's true, I get to pursue sanctification. I get to pursue holiness. I get to fight sin for my joy. That's a whole different way to fight, people, isn't it? It's a whole different way to fight. I think it's not going to take much It's not going to take much gospel truth. It's not going to take much meditation right here in this last part of Romans chapter 6. For you, if it's there, that sour taste in your mouth when it comes to imagining victory over sin, that ongoing sin battle you're fighting right now, if you've got a sour taste in your mouth, if you will meditate and you will live here with us this morning, I think the Holy Spirit's going to dispossess you of that sour taste in your mouth. Because here's what Paul is about to accentuate. Two things, and two things that are true for every Christian. I want you to get this. Two things, if you are a Christian, if you are saved, these two things are, I don't care what's going on right now, these two things are true for you. Number one, you have a new insatiable Thirst for righteousness. You have a new insatiable hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what did Jesus say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. That's true of you. Here's the second thing that's true of you. I know this, and I'm going to show you from Scripture, is that you have a sour taste in your mouth for sin. You have a sour taste in your soul for sin. Even if you're in this place right now where you like, you're like a dog returning to its own vomit. You're like, I just can't stop this thing. I can't defeat this thing. Here's what I know to be true. If you are saved, there is a hunger and a thirst in you for righteousness, and there is a sour taste in your mouth and in your soul for sin. And what we need to do is we need to see that clearly. And Paul is going to help us. Let's look at verse 14 and 15 again. Paul's stating a fact here. For sin will have no dominion over you. Why? 
not because you get better with your own willpower, but because you're, under, you're not under law. You're under grace. Whoa. So that raises a question. Well, what then? If I'm under grace, not under law, am I to sin because I'm not under law? I'm under grace. Paul says, by no means. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Right? We had a question back in verse 1. Because Paul ends chapter 5 and he goes, look, Adam sinned, in Adam we all sinned, and Adam's trespass led to many trespasses. Sin abounded, sin multiplied, right? Sin produced over and over and over and over again, but as much as sin multiplied and increased, the grace of God multiplied and increased all the more. It superabounded with more on top, right? That's how Paul ends chapter 5. And so that raises the question in chapter 1. Here's the question in chapter one. Am I to continue then in an abiding, friendly, cordial, kind of habitual relationship with sin since the more I sin and the more you sin and the more everybody sins, the more grace abounds? Am I to continue? And Paul said, don't even think about that. Put that out of your mind. Why? Because God has done something radical in salvation, hasn't he? Our nature's been transformed. Our union with Adam, verse 3, chapter 6, has been severed. And now we've been raised to new life and united in Christ, chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. So Paul says to continue in sin and abiding kind of sin that way is a mechanical impossibility. So don't you even think about it. That's ludicrous. Put that out of your mind. Now the question in verse 15 is similar but it's a little different. Let's look at it again. Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? That word sin that Paul uses there, the verb is different than verse one. In verse 15, he's talking about a single act. A single act. Here's the question. And you're gonna get this. You're gonna resonate with this. So if I'm not under law, I'm under grace, should I just sin from time to time? Like, shouldn't I just plan? I mean, that's literally what he's talking about. Should I just plan for the occasional sin? Should I just plan to slip up every now and then? Because if I'm not under law and I'm under grace, doesn't that just seem like that's what's going to happen anyway? You know how we tend to think? We tend to think that the law is like this overbearing deterrent to sin. The law comes along and says, don't do that or else. Like you do with your children. You do that one more time, right? You get so emphatic and their eyes get big. Or either you're a type of parent that you don't ever follow through on your threats and they're just looking at you like, yeah, right. <laughs> That's how we think of the law is like this overbearing parent that's threatening our lives if we don't stop doing that. And then we think grace is sort of like the lenient parent. Oh, they're just a kid. As if God's looking at us going, oh, they're just poor pitiful little sinners. We're just going to let that slide. Let's just give them a little more grace, okay? And you know what happens when we think that way? 
we start to treat sin as born again, spirit-filled, children of God, severed from our union with Adam, united to Christ in his death and in his life. That's radical language. We tend to think of ourselves or think of our occasional sins as like the occasional cheat meal when we're on a strict diet. Like, here's what I need to do. I just need to fight. I need to do the best I can. I'm a Christian now. I love Jesus. And I'm going to try real hard. But when I get tired of the fight, I'm just going to give myself a little relief and I'll just give in. And you know what the problem is with that? That kind of thinking stems from a gross misunderstanding of what grace actually is. Grace isn't lenient. Grace is transformative. And let me, let me show you what I'm talking about. Grace is not lenient. Grace is transformative because something has changed in us. And Paul says, you know it's changed. He starts, he says, don't you know? There's something that Paul assumes that we know. And I don't just mean informationally. I mean experientially. There's something we know. There's something we know has changed in all, on the inside of us that's changed the game when it comes to our ongoing war against sin. What is it that has changed? Verse 16. Verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to, of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. There's two ways to read that verse, two ways I think we could understand it. And only one of them is right, I think. The first way to understand verse 16 is to say that my obedience determines who my master is. My obedience determines who my master is. It's one way to read verse 16, and I've heard this text taught that way. Track with me. So in salvation, I'm set free from my bondage to sin, right? We agree on that? And I didn't earn that. You didn't earn that. By grace through faith, God does something radical. First Peter chapter 1, praise be to God who has caused us to be born again. So we get that, we understand that, and then I've heard this taught where if we continue to sin after salvation, either habitually or occasionally, that what we're doing is we're risking the return to that yoke of slavery. Who I obey determines who my master is. Now, if you play that tape out, it doesn't work, does it? Because if who I obey determines who my master is, either sin or righteousness, then that means my obedience, my obedience determines whether I live or die on its own. If I obey sin, then I die. If I obey righteousness, then I live. We're right back to a works righteousness gospel, aren't we? And what has Paul said? We're saved by grace through faith apart from works. So option number one doesn't really work, does it? Here's option number two. Instead of my obedience determines who my master is, 
Here's option number two. Who my master is determines my obedience. That's a big difference, isn't it? And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense logically and theologically. Slaves don't get to determine who they obey, do they? Well, Bradley, you're messing with free will now. Listen, just track with me on this. There, there, Paul is using this language, and he almost makes an apology for it in the middle of the text. I'm talking this way because of your human limitations. But the point is, and I know it's hard to talk about slavery, but what Paul is picturing for us is a slave that has changed masters. A slave that has a new master, and that master is the one that's determining obedience. Whoever rules over my heart and my desires determines my obedience. Right? So, who I'm a slave to determines my obedience. So which is it, Paul? One or the other. Verse 17, 18, help us. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin, he's talking past tense, isn't he? That's who you once were, have become, and I love this. You ought to underline this, star it, circle it, square it, whatever you need to do in your Bibles. Have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Two things I want to point out there. That word committed, just leave leave verse 17 up there. That word committed literally means handed over. It means delivered. I've been delivered. I've been handed over to something. I've been redeemed from one master, and I've been handed over to a new slave master. That sounds oppressive, doesn't it? Like, am I just some sort of pawn in this whole thing? Like, God's jerked me out of one yoke of slavery and put me under another. Here's the interesting thing about being a slave to righteousness. That my new slave master does not, listen, he does not rule over me against my will. He doesn't rule over me against my free will. Instead, he overwhelms my will. He swallows up my will, and my obedience is not forced. It's not because of a lorded over, here's the rules and you better obey or else. It's because my will has gotten swallowed up in his will for me. Now my water has changed. And so what I want, what I hunger for, what I thirst for is the righteousness of God displayed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what I want now. That's what it means to be a slave to righteousness. I'm not being dragged around by my hair if I had any. God has overwhelmed my will so that I obey From the heart. What does that look like? Verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. I think that's just Paul's way of saying, look, my analogy is going to break down at some point, but I'm just trying to help you understand. I'm trying to help you picture something. Picture what, Paul? For just just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... 
So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, listen, watch this. This is another great place to underline. You were free in regard to righteousness. I was free from righteousness before I was saved. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Whoa. The end of those things is death. He's picturing two kinds of people. The unregenerate sinner, the unsaved, not born again sinner, and the born again saint. He's picturing those two kinds of people. Whether you're saved or not, here's what's true of me and here's what's true of you. Every human being pursues their own joy, their own peace, and their own satisfaction. That's true of everybody. Everything we do, even the most charitable deeds, is rooted in a desire to find joy, to find peace, and to find satisfaction. That's who we are as humans. The difference between an unregenerate sinner and a born-again saint is this. The unregenerate sinner only knows sin in the pursuit of, of joy, peace, and satisfaction. The, un, the unregenerate sinner is a slave to sin, a slave to sin in such a way that they only know that pursuit in order to find the joy and peace and satisfaction that we're all longing for. Sin controls where the sinner goes to find joy. That's why pride leads to more pride. Greed leads to more greed. Lust leads to more lust. Anger leads to more anger. You know that. And they're free from righteousness. The unregenerate sinners, free from righteousness. What in the world does that mean? Here's what I think it means, okay? Two things. There's two things the unregenerate sinner cannot see. They cannot see that their sin will never deliver on its empty promises to provide joy, peace, and satisfaction. They can't see it. The other thing they can't see is the unregenerate sinner cannot see on their own that their sin is leading to eternal death. When Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3, he had a question. And he was trying to figure out who Jesus was, and he's like, Teacher, we know that you're a man sent from heaven. Nobody could do the stuff that you do. And Jesus interrupts him and says, Nicodemus, let me tell you something. John chapter 3, go read it. Unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom. You won't see it. You'll drive right by it. So the sinner is free from righteousness because they cannot see that it won't deliver on its promises and that it's leading to eternal death. But when we are born again, when we are born again by grace through faith, our eyes are opened. Verse 20 again. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now? Everybody say now. Now ashamed. 
But the end of those things is death. Here's what's true of the saved. Our eyes have been opened. We see now. We see sin can't deliver. It can't deliver on its promises. And we see and we know that it's leading to eternal death. Our eyes have been opened. That wasn't true of us before we were saved. But now it is. Our eyes have been opened to righteousness because sin has been exposed And now my tastes have changed for righteousness and there's no turning back for me. I thirst for righteousness and I got a sour taste in my mouth for sin and there's no turning back. You can push against that. You can fight against that. But let me tell you something. The God who called you, the God who chose you, the God that called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, he will win the day over your heart. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I was talking with a a brother just this week about last week's sermon where we talked about the Christian life not being about transformed decisions, but about transformed desires. And he was sitting at my dinner table and he said, a young man in the fight, he said, you know, Bradley, he said, that resonated with me so much. He said, because when I'm tempted, I build, I build the sin up in my mind. I build it up. I magnify it and I convince myself that it's going to be great. It's going to be great, and it's going to provide me with the relief that I want, the relief that I need. It's going to give me the joy that I'm lacking right now. And so I run to it. I build it up in my mind. I make this big, grandiose picture of what's going to happen because of this sin that I'm going to plan to commit. And then I commit it, and I find myself incredibly let down. He said, suddenly I find myself in deep regret going, Why do I keep doing this to myself? You know what I said to him? I said, brother, that's God's kindness to you. That is in and of itself a work of grace. Because, listen, grace is not lenient compared to the taskmaster of the law. Grace is so powerful, it transforms me. And whereas all I used to know was the pursuit of my own joy and satisfaction in sin. That's all I knew. But now, as a born-again saint, child of God, I've got this hunger inside of me. I've got this thirst. I've got this insatiable need for God. And I try to ignore it. The Bible does talk about quenching the spirit, grieving the spirit. And if you're a Christian, I don't even have to unpack that for you. You may have never read that scripture, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
When you stuff that thing down and you go after that sin because you think that's the quickest route to joy. Only to find yourself weeping, regretting, and then in this dangerous place of, I'm so disappointed that I failed that I think I'll just fail again and try to quelch that feeling of shame that I now have. You know what that feeling of shame is? It's the sour taste of death in your mouth and in your soul because of sin. Why? The wages of sin is and when you sin and you feel that shame, when you sin and there's a sour taste of death in your soul, you know what that is? Grace. And grace is a stronger deterrent than the law. Because you know what the law did? We're going to talk about this more in chapter 7. Here's what the law did. The law just awakened my sinful nature. It gave me the rules and said, don't do this, and then it almost propelled me in the opposite direction. And that raises some questions about the law. Paul's going to get to that in chapter 7, but here's what we need to know today. Grace has transformed us in such a way that now as a born-again Christian, you've got an insatiable thirst for righteousness, and you have the sour taste of death in your mouth for sin. Make no mistake about it, Christians. Sin leads to death. This is not in my notes. I believe that for the Christian, our salvation is secure. But I can't help Listen to me. I can't help but feel a sober, a soberness in my soul when I heed, when I hear the warnings in the New Testament that say, look, my sin is leading to death. Stay right here. Stay right here. Okay? My sin is leading to death. If I continue it, if I keep planning for it, if I keep running to that for my joy. Sin is leading to death. How do you square that with security and salvation, Bradley? I'm comfortable in the tension because I hear my God warning me, look, quit running to the very thing that's never going to deliver on joy. Come to me and let me satisfy you. My new master rules over my heart by transforming and conforming my will, desires to be like his. Don't treat grace as leniency. Know that God has given you grace to transform you. So here's three conclusions, and I'm done. Three conclusions I've come to as we close chapter six. Number one, I don't have to sin anymore. I don't have to. 
I've been freed by grace from my slavery to sin and salvation. Where I was once in bondage to prefer sin, I'm not anymore. I'm free to prefer God. Conclusion number two. I don't want to sin anymore. Not only do I not have to, I don't want to. My desires have changed. My obedience doesn't determine my preference. My preference determines my obedience. I want God. I prefer him and his righteousness to sin now. And that's why when I still sin, even when I plan for it, I'm left with the sour taste of death in my mouth. And I've learned when that taste is in my mouth and in my soul to give God thanks. There's a passage in Hebrews where it says that Esau wanted to repent and he couldn't. God forbid our consciences get seared to the point where we don't taste death because of God's kindness to turn us away from what will kill us and back to where we have life. Conclusion number three, grace is actually a stronger deterrent to sin than the law. By the power of God's grace, my wanter has changed. And that's what it means to be a slave to righteousness. There's two challenges for you. Two challenges. Open your heart, Christians, to the reality that my growth in holiness doesn't have to remain in the shallow waters of willpower discipline to make better decisions motivated by the fear of consequences. Let me say it again. Open your heart, Christians, to the fact that your growth in holiness does not have to remain in the shallow waters of willpower discipline to make better decisions motivated by the fear of consequences. I'm not saying if that's where you are that you're not saved. I'm just saying there's a lot more to the Christian life and the, and the journey with Jesus than that. The journey with Jesus can and should grow into a free pursuit, a free pursuit of my own joy. And it's in that pursuit of joy that I wage war against sin because I found the greater treasure. Only by grace. Here's challenge number two. Feed Christians, feed your new craving for righteousness, feed it. You won't satisfy it, but that's a good thing. Feed it. Feed it. How do I do that, Bradley? Let me read this scripture, Psalm 119. Here's one way. Here's one way to feed it. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not, what? Against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all 
riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Notice, notice, notice. Notice the effort. Notice the effort on the part of the psalmist. What's he trying to do? Store up the word. You know what that means, right? Notice the effort, the prayerful cry to be taught the word. This guy's trying to store it up and he's prayerfully crying out to be taught. Notice the offensive declaration of the word. Not offensive in the sense I'm offended, but offensive, defensive. There's an initiative. There's a declaration of the word. It's on his lips. I'm speaking it. And notice the conscious meditation on the word. He's thinking about it all the time. I'm storing it up. I'm praying and seizing every opportunity I can to be taught. I'm speaking it. I'm speaking it. And I'm thinking about it all the time. To what end? To what end? Delight. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. This is a really oversimplistic way to put it and probably a crude analogy. Christians, we've been invited to a steak dinner and we're settling for bologna sandwiches. I don't like bologna. how people eat that stuff. No offense. Just the name, bologna, it's like, well, what? That doesn't even sound like food. Thing is, I didn't come up here say something that we don't already know you know this I didn't tell you and Paul didn't tell us for all intents and purposes anything we don't already know because if you're saved you know you've been invited to the steak dinner feast and you've got a hunger for that and you keep running after bologna sandwiches and you've got this sour taste in your mouth that you think you're going to assuage by letting lawlessness lead to more lawlessness and let me tell you something you've got a new slave master he has swallowed up your will and his the only thing that's going to satisfy you is righteousness it's the only thing And we've got some help. We'll talk about it in chapter 8. The person of the Holy Spirit. We're going to learn how to walk by Him. Just for today. Just for today. I want to remind you. Your taste of change. Your taste of change. You don't have to sin anymore. More than that, you don't want to. 
And let that sour taste that's in your soul and in your mouth right now, let it point you back because it is God's grace and kindness to you. Let it point you back to the well that won't run dry. To the bread that truly satisfies. To the treasure that's so valuable, it's worth selling everything to have it. That is who our God is. And that's what he longs to do in us. Would you stand with me? Lord, I pray that as we worship and as we leave this gathering of worship today, that we would leave in joy, that we would begin to imagine the fight over sin as a pursuit of joy, not a begrudging discipline. Would you do that in us, Holy Spirit? Would you work that in us right now? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com slash give. Thanks again for joining us.